gals, you hip cats, cool kittens, you diesel-powered disciples of cool, this is the Diesel Powered Podcast, the voice of diesel punk on iTunes and Stitcher, and hey, hey, the gang's all here. We've got Larry Amyet, the amazing Mr. Wofford, Daisy O'Dare, and I am John Pica, known to some of you as Big Daddy Cool, Johnny Della Rocca. And guys, we've got an awesome, awesome Halloween-ish episode kicking off something brand new. This is going to be a new series. Hopefully we'll be able to do it at least once a month on personalities of the diesel era and tonight we've picked two and they're so apropos we're going to be talking about harry houdini america's first superhero and the master of diesel era horror and mythological fiction hp lovecraft guys why don't you uh say a Hearty howdy-do to our uh, listeners. Daisy? Good evening, folks. It's a little cold and dreary here in the Memphis area tonight, but as always, Miss Daisy's got a smile on her face, and she's happy to see all of you tonight. And uh, from Little Rock, Arkansas, Mr. Wofford. Hey, it's great to be back. And the long-lost prodigal son, Boss Larry, is back with us from Dallas-Fort Worth. How you doing, Larry? Doing great, Johnny, and it is great to be back. It's beautiful down here in, in North Texas right now. Uh, Mid-70s during the day, uh, upper 50s, low 60s at night. Very nice. Wait wait a minute. I thought you guys were getting pounded by a hurricane. Uh, nah, it fizzled out over the mountains in, Me- in Mexico. We had a little rain. It was a rainy weekend, which was uh, a welcome release. Well, because it's cold and rainy here in Nashville. Everyone's blaming that hurricane for it. Oh, uh, I, I, maybe some, I don't know. Maybe the rain went north, and I understand Houston got heavy rain, but he got about four or five inches. But I don't think it had anything to do with the hurricane over the weekend. Well, very cool. Well, we are gathered together this evening to uh, talk about two of our uh, favorite diesel era personalities and larry when i mentioned this idea to you i could hear your ears perk up and your excitement kind of spark over the interweb this 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 uh diesel era personalities i think is right up your right up your alley okay i think so i think it's a fantastic idea you know, we talked about the importance of knowing the source material. So, yeah, I think it's a great idea. It's going to be a lot of fun. Outstanding. Well, so we're going to talk about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Harry Houdini. And uh, for our listeners out there, uh, we're just going to kind of chat roundtable style and see where this goes. We don't have any set outline or agenda. And... Um, we're just gonna we're just gonna talk about things that interest us in regards to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and uh, Harry Houdini and so Larry and uh, Mr. Wofford, I'm gonna let you guys kind of lead us off with uh, with H.P. Lovecraft. Talk well, about 
talk about who he was, what he did, why he's important to the diesel era, some of his favorite works of yours. You know the drill. Hey, uh, well, John, well, if you want to go ahead and get started, I think maybe you're best qualified to give maybe a little bit of a bio about this. Um, yes, thank you. Born Howard Philip Lovecraft in August of 1890. Just a few years later, while on a sales trip to Chicago, his father will succumb to insanity. His violent hallucinations cause him to be committed to Butler Hospital, where he died five years later. Susan Lovecraft, his mother, returned home to Providence, Rhode Island, where they lived with his grandfather, Whipple Phillips. Susan was overly protective of young Lovecraft, but her near puritanical views restrained any physical affections towards her son. It was in his grandfather's library that Lovecraft fell in love with 18th century literature. This influenced more than just Lovecraft's writing. Lovecraft believed in that time's code of the gentleman, and he tried to emulate it. He fell in love with the writers who wrote just for the love of writing. It was his grandfather and his library, which were the primary source of Lovecraft's education. In 1904, tragedy struck again. The Lovecraft's grandfather died. Whipple Phillips had made several bad investments and the family home was sold, and with it, the library Lovecraft loved so much. In high school, Lovecraft fell in love with astronomy but grew dismayed when he learned his deficiencies in math would prevent him from pursuing it as a career. He fell into a deep depression or perhaps had a nervous breakdown and left school. This lasted nine years. He lived with the rumors of the cause of his father's madness and a mother who both overmothered him, often keeping him from what normal kids would do, and also saying that he had a hideous continence. All these things that helped lead to his depression also helped lead to Lovecraft's many eccentricities or quirks in his personality. He would go for walks wearing a long coat with the collar flipped up and a hat, staring straight ahead, actively avoiding eye contact with people. Of course, some of the stories of his eccentricities are exaggerated, and some are flat-out lies, but a good story often wins out over the truth. It also didn't help that he was a recluse. He read a lot of the pulp magazines and even published his own called The Conservative, in which his writing showed a strong passion for his beliefs that he formed earlier in life, including a strong xenophobia. He is, of course, a product of his time and reflected many of what his fellow Americans felt about immigrants and race mixing. Many of the things he wrote were reprehensible even then, though and his views on the evils of racial interbreeding and the degradation of purity were almost Aryan in nature. Many writers of both like mind and contradictory views were attracted to his magazine. Many he formed lifelong friendships with and whom helped soften Lovecraft's views. His letters between them were copious and contained everything from suggestions on stories to notes to rough drafts of his works and letters are still being discovered to this day. Some have referenced and even outlined unknown and possibly undiscovered Lovecraft works. The first of Lovecraft works to be published outside of his magazine was, was Dagon. 
Dagon is the last testament of a tortured, morphine-addicted man who plans to commit suicide when the drug which gives him relief runs out. He wants us to know why and maybe warning of us of what he experienced and saw early in World War I. He, in a lifeboat, ran aground on a recently formed island, possibly a bit of ocean floor thrust to the surface and some volcanic upheaval. The man explores the island and comes across a mound at the edge of, the, of an immense pit or canyon, which he descends, and he finds a gigantic white monolith that was well-shaped and must have known the workmanship and possibly worship of thinking creatures. All around were unknown hieroglyphic writing consisting of familiar aquatic symbols like fish, eels, and squid. But also there were these little crude sculptures depicting a humanoid being with two arms, two legs, webbed hands and feet, and a head with a wide, flappy lips and glassy, bulging eyes and less pleasant features. Then a creature that bared a resemblance to those sculptures silently emerges from the water and goes towards the monolith and begins what only can be described as worship. The man runs terrified back to his lifeboat and begins pushing it out to sea. He remembers a storm and then waking up in a hospital in San Francisco. There's a bit more, but back to Lovecraft now. Dagon exhibits much of what becomes the Lovecraft style, in which scholarly people discovering violations of natural law and being driven towards madness or death, the use of Baroque language used to describe unnameable horrors, uh, and set the scene, the ancient gods not caring about mankind, some wanting to reclaim the earth as their own, and a concept known as deep time a term that outside of Lovecraft fans is usually only talked about by astronomers and geologists and maybe an evolutionary biologist. Deep time is the time that it takes for a continent to form and mountains to rise, the time it takes a star to be born and die, or the time it takes creatures to evolve. Now a published author, he was conflicted about pursuing payment for his work since they were meant to be personal enjoyments. Luckily, his fellow writers convinced him to hire out his skills as a ghostwriter. Lovecraft was quite prolific writing anonymously as other writers. One of my personal favorite tales from this period in Lovecraft's career is Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, sometimes called Beneath the Pyramids, and originally published as a true tale that happened to Harry Houdini and written by Houdini, but was really written by Lovecraft. The first story after his ghostwriting that he published is The Outsider, which in my personal opinion is a masterpiece with a great twist ending. I won't ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it. It was now as Lovecraft was emerging as a writer in 1919 Susan Lovecraft, his mother, was committed to the asylum her husband had been. She died in 1921 during a botched surgery. This devastated Lovecraft, and he slipped into depression, and his writing pretty much stopped. One of his fellow writers commissioned a humor serial story for his magazine called Home Brew. This piece Lovecraft gave him is now known as Herbert West Reanimator. A piece I would love to see done 
as a true-to-written story movie or a serial. No updating, a actual period piece. I think it is one of the few Lovecraft pieces that could be done justice on the big screen, but hasn't. The movie bearing this name is horrible. It was soon after Lovecraft met Sonia Hefgreen, the woman who had become his wife. They courted for two years and were married in 1924. The marriage, though, fell apart because Lovecraft, he was pretty much a house husband who wouldn't get a job and occasionally would sell a story here and there to weird tales. Sonia, after the divorce, burned all of Lovecraft's letters to her, some over 20 pages long. It would be eight years after Lovecraft's death that she would find out she was never legally divorced from Lovecraft for he ne never signed the final papers. It was during his marriage that a few anchor points in his Cthulhu mythos, a term he never used, appear. Miskatonic University, the town of Arkham, and the Necronomicon. It's also at this point that there's a conundrum with Lovecraft. First, I'd like to make the comment that I've only read Lovecraft's stories. I haven't studied his letters. I've been told that both his letters up to this point shows Lovecraft to be a very anti-Semitic. I've also been told that Lovecraft hid this from his friends he exchanged letters with, and that it shows up in his writings. And yes, his xenophobia and racism shows in his writing, but writers are products of his or her era, and you can't judge someone just from their fiction. And he married a Jew. His wife was Jewish. Lovecraft's views did soften over time as he was exposed to other writers' views and ideas, and traveling helped as well. And I've been told that Lovecraft wrote about how he wished this would have happened sooner. My view is yes, he was probably racist, but I don't think he was as bad as most people make out least not later in his life. Most people seem to think with Lovecraft, it's a one-to-one, -one, his fiction with his life. About seven years after his divorce, Lovecraft died of cancer. I believe it was intestinal cancer. It was during those last years he wrote The Whisperer in the Dark, The Color Out of Space, The Shadow of Innsmouth, and many other tales. Lovecraft, with all his flaws, changed modern horror. Before him, horror writing, if you were a good person, you probably were going to be okay. Lovecraft said no. The ancient gods and the cosmos are indifferent to mankind. Most of the elder gods are beyond our concept of good and evil. We're like ants or bacteria are to us. Do you notice every ant you stepped on? Or how many billions of bacteria you kill when washing a floor? His work has inspired books like Stephen King's The Mist, movies from The Thing to Hellboy, his elder gods and old ones, the deep ones, Cthulhu, Azathoth, Yogg-Sagoth, and many others of his creations permeate our culture. Many of the writers of his own time, uh, including two more notable, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard, um, Burroughs wrote the Tarzan stories, and Robert E. Howard wrote the Conan stories, respectively. Um, they both reference the Elder Gods or Old Ones, and it's really hard to find any other modern writer who has influenced a genre as much. 
Wow. So that's uh, that's quite the uh, quite the bio there. Just just in in his real life, quite the fantastical individual. Um, talk a little bit, guys, about uh, some of his specific works and maybe why he's important to the diesel era. Well, his work uh, really set standard, like John Walker was saying, for for horror as we come to know it. And an excellent book that talks about this is called, uh, it's in the Gothic Dream series, and it's called The Fulminicon. Uh, now, it's named after, of course, his fantasy grimoire of you know, evil that was supposed to be used to raise Cthulhu and the end of the world. The book is by Sammy Mayne, and he shows that really the Fulminicon and the work of Lovecraft affect this horror all the way down the line. Uh, including, you know, almost everything we see in modern horror dates back to him. Uh, but his various novels set the tone for the dark side of things back during the 20s when most of his work was written. So yes, I think uh, to really understand the, the he was writing what I would call proto novel during that time. It's a term that uh, uh, has been used in, deep, in the diesel pump community for a little while now. Proto diesel pump, which is stories like the Mountain of Badness, the Call of Cthulhu, and a variety of other very powerful stories that really set the theme for horror during that era. And John Walker explained it best when he talked about that he put a whole new spin on it, on horror, where now even good people die. And it, it wasn't uncommon now in Lovecraft stories to have the protagonist, the story, uh, die by the end of the short story. In fact, uh, most of the time they died or went insane. Or went insane, that's right. And that kind of predated the darkness of film noir and pulp noir, which it wasn't uncommon to have the lead character die at the end of the, at the, end of the novel or the film even. Uh, so I think you know the film noir society used to have a piece that said no happy ending. <laughs> that was pretty common for a Lovecraft uh, horror novel. It didn't necessarily go to have a happy ending. The bad guy might win. And as for specific tales, um, a good one to start with, if you want to just dive directly into Lovecraft, is The Outsider. It starts with this. Person, the narrator waking up in this dark place and calling out and then climbing his way up and following towards the light. And then when he gets there, there's a party and everyone screams in terror and runs. Um, it's, when you read it, it's just amazing how at the end it just twists and you'll want to reread it again. Um, as I mentioned, um, he ghost wrote for Houdini uh, the Houdini story is sort of Lovecraft light if you want to sort of test the waters before jumping into Houdini. It's uh, typically called Imprisoned with the Pharaohs. Sometimes it's published as Beneath the Pyramids. And it's uh, told as if it was written by Houdini and it happened to Houdini. And he ends up underneath the pyramids and the Sphinx 
he gets jumped. Uh, the local uh, magicians, magic users or from the tradition, uh, think he has real magic and they don't like this foreign magician. And they tie him up after beating him senseless. And they put him down this dark hole and he uh, has to escape from the ropes and find his way out through the tunnels. And there's a couple of twists uh, on what happens in the tunnels there. Um, Larry mentioned um, At the Mountains of Madness, which inspired the movie The, the Thing by John Carpenter. And then, of course, uh, Lovecraft created uh, Cthulhu from The Call of Cthulhu, which gives us the the Cthulhu uh, modern-day uh, mythology that other writers have added to. And he also created the Necronomicon, which is in a wide variety of movies and stories. And then uh, some of Lovecraft's legacy, other than the other books that people have written, there are uh, games based on Cthulhu, like Darwin Castle's Cthulhu Realms, which is a deck-building game. There is Cthulhu Wars, which is a unique twist on most typical uh, Cthulhu games. Instead of trying to stop the Elder Gods from coming, the Elder Gods have already come through the gates and are on Earth destroying it, and you pick a faction and you help out a certain Elder God. And there's even comic books like the new Lovecraft that just got published in which Lovecraft has been in an insane asylum for many years and two young uh, wizards or magic users break him out because they're going up against Aleister Crowley and John D, I believe. And typically I don't like when fiction has Lovecraft as an action hero. Not that he's shown as much of an action hero yet in the comic, but he does do more than he would have in real life. And he probably is also a magic user and it hasn't shown that per se but i'm loving this comic and can't wait for issue two that sounds interesting because uh lovecraft himself was a very sickly individual physically uh uh he was very sickly i understand all who were five was died so young i would want to reinforce what uh something john said about some of his uh, the, uh, Lovecraft's racism. Um, sometimes it got it got really, really bad. Uh, you see it really bad in the animator. Uh, one of his biographers, uh, Leslie S. Klinger, who wrote the new annotated Lovecraft, uh, wrote, quote, Lovecraft had a deep-seated abhorrence of black Jews, Southern Italians, Portuguese, Poles, Mexican, French, Canadians and virtually every other race that was not like in Nordic, and that he was a strong supporter of Hitler's eugenics program and racial cleansing, and that that those were well known. So you see that crop up in some of his work, and it there's a few, and I can't, and I apologize, I can't think of the ones where it's really bad, but some of them are really. One of them being uh, the animator might be one of the worst. Uh, I don't recall it that much in the reanimator. Herbert West reanimator. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty, so he has some pretty spring points. He drops the N-word, but some people say, well, that's just because it was Northeastern. But 
not from what we see. And a lot of his concepts of the dangerous aliens were subtle references to in the and the other. Um, he had some issues. Being said, I'm like Sean in that he, I go back and I reread the short stories again and again and pick out new stuff every time. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting stuff. I got a couple of questions for you guys. One, you know, you talked about the movie The Thing being, was that it? Yes. Being uh, inspired by Lovecraft. What, I don't seem to remember or recall any movies based around the creature of Cthulhu. If I- I'm missing those, or has there just not been a good one made? <laughs> um, <laughs> most of the Lovecraft films are quaint, to be polite. Um, most of them downright suck, <laughs> to oh, be yeah. honest. <laughs> uh, Lovecraft is very hard to film his stories, because most of them don't actually have a visible monster. It's the lurking fear, the thing in the shadows coming there was a Call of Cthulhu done recently, um, in the past few years, as a silent film, I believe, black and white. I think I have it around here somewhere. I don't think I've actually gotten to watch it yet. Um, there are many films based on his work, and very few are good. I thought The Animator back in 1985 was not bad. I'm not even there. That that was a big budget. Uh, I've seen that movie. I, I I don't remember liking it, but I remember seeing it. Yeah, I mean, it was right. was like, that well, Peter think... O'Toole in that? Um, I don't recall. No. I'm not sure if we're talking about the same one, but I've seen one movie called The Reanimator, which was really horrible. It was brought sort of up to date and... I think it took place at a med college. Yeah, yeah, that's the one yeah. I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Um, honestly, Herbert West is a great story, and if they shoot it as a period piece and segments as it was shot and maybe do like a mini series on Stars or HBO or something like that, it would be a great one-to-one transition. It really didn't work, in my opinion, with the updating. Actually, there was, I'm trying to, it's going to drive me nuts and I'll probably remember later, but there was a good uh, Lovecraft movie that I saw. There's one that's okay called Dagon, but there's another one that's really good. And then there's there's also a Lovecraft Fear of the Unknown, which is uh, a documentary on Lovecraft covering his life and some of his works, which is just remarkable. Now, looking through a list, I see that there was one, and I think this is one I'm thinking of, a black and white called Call of Cthulhu that was made in 2005. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess it wasn't made just a few years ago. It was made in 2005. That's the one I just mentioned. That one's supposed to be real good. I think I think the trailer trailer's really good. I, I haven't seen the whole thing. I, I haven't seen that. I'll need to check that out. Because uh, the, the, really the only... Um, exposure that I have to Lovecraft is through some of the uh, comics works. Um, and, and there are a lot of, uh, a lot of digital, a lot of comic series that have been based on him. I've got uh, the um, fall of Cthulhu graphic novel. 
I've got, uh, what is this? Um, Pulp Tales, which is based on uh, Lovecraft's work. And what is this one? Operation something. Operation Broken Wings, which um, is supposed to have some uh, Lovecraftian roots. Um, he was also the featured one of the featured characters in the uh, recent um, the recent Heralds comic series from Action Lab Comics. Uh, it was uh, Lovecraft and Tesla teaming up to stop an ancient evil that uh, and there are all kinds of uh, other historical characters involved in that story. It uh, takes place at Samuel Clemens final birthday celebration. Um, Harry Houdini is working as an agent for HP Lovecraft investigating uh, supernatural occurrences. Uh, Tesla is in, is engaged to Amelia Earhart and the whole mystery starts when she's like absconds with one of his experimental rockets and um, really great series, really a lot of fun. Um, probably not based anywhere in any kind of sort of reality other than Larry, you said something about Lovecraft being, you know, kind of sickly. And in this series, he is very frail. He's, although I think they probably paint him in an accurate light with his attitude. He has a very pompous, superior attitude. Um, he's a little bit xenophobic or antisocial. And I think that's because of his frailness. Um, I know people who tend to be physically frail tend to have some attitude adjustment problems. Um, but in that comic series, he is a magic user. He is a wizard, a sorcerer. So uh, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool stuff from uh, Action Lab Comics. And that reminds me, Larry, what was that movie series where Lovecraft was the only guy in a world of magic and he refused to use magic? Oh, I was about to ask you about that. Um, it was an HBO uh, production, and Lovecraft was, and it was played, uh, hold on, I'll pause. But yeah, and it was set during the. It was set. Uh, it was set cast a deadly spell. Cast a deadly spell with Fred Ward. And I think is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, it was cast a deadly spell, and there was a sequel to it as well. I think there was. It was actually really quite good. It's a little tongue in cheek. Wait, does, does does Fred Ward Ward play Lovecraft? Yeah, he played. Well, he plays a detective with the name Lovecraft. Wait a minute! I started watching this on either Netflix or Hulu a, about a month ago. Oh yeah, you'll find it on YouTube. My uh, sequel is called Witch Hunt. That's the sequel, Witch Hunt. That is interesting because I am a big. I'm a big Fred Ward fan. I like Fred Ward. Um, loved him in Tremors and oh, Remo yeah. Williams and Uncommon Valor. And so anytime I see something with him in it, I, I instantly want to watch it. And I started watching this this series or, or this series of films 
a um, couple months ago. I'll have to go back and pick that back up. That's fascinating. Well, here's here's a question for you guys. So, Lovecraft is one of those personalities who is is a real life historical figure, but he's taken on such a larger than life fictionalized characteristic and has really become part of the genre punk pop culture. And what I mean by that is a lot of our steampunk brothers and sisters latch on to the uh, Lovecraftian stuff. And I, it, I guess probably because of the time period that he was writing, you know, it's part of that. I, I, I think you've called it, Larry, the, the, the antebellum period between steam and diesel era. And um, he's one of those characters that uh, tends to cross over the genre punks. I just quite understood why he'd take up on him. His first stuff was a bit until like the early 20s. Um, I but, think I but think have you noticed like, that? I have. Um, I, th I wonder if the fact that Cthulhu with the tentacles kind of like the Kraken, and they're obsessed with the Kraken. So the big giant sea monster. Yeah, big monsters and, you know, weird things coming from other dimensions. That's a big thing for them, too. And I've seen it in Diesel Punk, too. So, you know, it could be something that crosses into both Steam and Diesel Punk, I'd say. And then I think it also has to do with the myth of Lovecraft himself. A lot of what people learned about Lovecraft pre-internet are just fanciful, made-up tales or exaggerations. And many of the things I learned that were factual that sound like that, I sort of discarded as, oh, this was fake, until I ran across references that Lovecraft made in his own letters to some of it. But um, Lovecraft had this mythical thing about him. A lot of people believe the Necronomicon really is this really old book, and then Lovecraft made it up. Uh, a lot of people at one point believed, or a lot of would say that he tapped into the Akashic Record, which is this um, astral book of everything, the history of the entire universe, past, present, and future, and that the elder gods he wrote about were real. And some people truly believe that Azathoth and Cthulhu could possibly be real. And so I think that sort of feeds into the whole steampunk latching on to Lovecraft. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that, John, because that book that I referenced, the one by Sammy Mae, titled The Chromaticon and published by Dr. Green, documents exactly what you're talking about. Uh, how even while he was writing his short stories, uh, as they were published in Weird Tales, uh, he would get letters from readers who thought that the Necromaticon was real. And, and they were was, looking to see where they could see a copy and get a copy. Right, right. It was so believable what he was writing that they thought he had access to something uh, that was real. Uh, well, so, mm -hmm. well, I, you know, I see and read posts and and see things, articles and whatnot on the internet from Lovecraft fans. I dare say. Cthulhu disciples. Hmm. They, the, 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 there are people who I believe do believe that it is not a fictional character, but a, a real entity. And 
have almost taken on a a religious reverence for that character. Yeah, there's some issues. There's some people have issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we we bring up Lovecraft because he's had an immense influence on on pop culture, on horror, and on literature, including my own work. Tales from the flip side. Cthulhu is one of the key figures in the story told in my book, Tales from the Flip Side. Available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Audible.com. Couldn't get away without a plug. <laughs> that's well, that's a good that. book to plug. <laughs> hey, and I appreciate all the great things that you and Wofford have said about it. I really, really do appreciate that. Well, any uh, last thoughts, comments on uh, on H.P. Lovecraft? One bit of warning for anyone who hasn't read him and is about to read him for the first time. You might want to have a dictionary handy. He uses very Baroque language. That's a good point. Uh, at some point, there's a formal Northeastern blue-blooded ancestry, I think. He's still kind of like pre- and like more uh, Edwardian in his writing stuff. Oh man, see that's going to be tough for me. Well, luckily, um, he uses similar phrases repeatedly. Uh, not repeatedly, repeatedly, but some the the phrase might show up in multiple works, and so you learn the word for one, and you'll and of course you can get it by context. But if you don't want to have a dictionary handy, Audible has. Lovecraft. Um, the Classic Tales podcast has covered some of his work, and it's a free podcast. And there's numerous audio podcasts that read his work and in-depth discuss his work. So and, the resources if, are out there. And if you don't want to pay for it, uh, online is a variety of uh, free sites that have his work uh, available to you. Uh, dot Wait, what is that? Dagon, D-A-G-O-N-B-Y-C-E-S dot com. Isn't, isn't uh, all of his work now in the public domain? Yes. E e e yes and no. Um, yes, it is, and it's been in the public domain for many years because it was actually the copyright was given to I forget her name, but it was a young lady at his death, and she never renewed it. But Arkham House gathered up everything they could of his works, his letters, etc., and have published his works and have tried to sue and successfully have sued many people who have used Lovecraft's uh, work in their own work, including the Dungeons and Dragons people who removed the Lovecraft mythos out of their deities and demigods book and other authors until a few people went, no, it's public domain, and here are the the documents that show that it's in public domain because it went to her not to y'all they will still try and sue some people but you can shut them down because yes it is in the public domain you you know right. what those... all works oh sorry go ahead daisy all works published before 1923 are public domain that's what it's telling me in this thing i'm reading here so anything he's published after then um yeah it might be under that uh, disagreement you were talking about well, what's really interesting, you know what they call 
those people trademark trolls. There's a big case going on right now with Hermes Press and the trademark over uh, Buck Rogers. Well, with Arkham House, it really did look like they had the trademark for many years. And they were uh, friends of Lovecraft that that they wrote back and forth. And they are the people who gathered his works, published them in the first collected stories. They're really the reason Lovecraft is known today. They saved his works. And so I sort of understand them thinking that they have the copyright and trying to guard it even though they don't, but because they really did save Lovecraft and let us know about him today. Right. So I, I guess I have some um, sympathy for them, and I, for that very reason. If, uh, and of course, that was done originally by friends of Lovecraft. And turns out he, although he was not an isolated person, turns out he had lots of friends. And um, his closest friends saved his work. Now, I missed one side. But probably one of the best sites that really has the most extensive of not just his fiction but his poetry and even his first some of his personal letters is the website hplovecraft.com. A Lovecraft letter was found just a few years ago. One of uh, an unknown Lovecraft letter was found in an attic. Uh, He was a prolific letter writer. Some of his letters were twenty pages long. Uh, and he would chronicle everything from outlines of his stories to rough drafts of his stories to just ideas. And he would even help other writers with their rough drafts and ideas and send paragraphs of ideas and data for them. And so you, your grandparents may have known Lovecraft or a friend of Lovecraft. They might have a letter in his, their attic. So it's a uh, – it, but that would be my two recommendations. Uh, for sources of material. And uh, if you want to read hardback, and you just want to see the beautiful art, uh, Valentine Del Rey put out uh, a series of, uh, put out his material years ago. And the artwork is absolutely fantastic. I do, uh, if you want to see some best ones, the best of H.P. Lovecraft, Blood Curling Tales of Horror and the Macabre. It has some beautiful, beautiful artwork on the cover. Outstanding. Well, that is that is really cool. Um, we're going to switch over to another great personality that uh, we all kind of have an affection for, and especially Mr. Wofford and I, because we are uh, both magicians, and um, that's Harry Houdini. And... Uh, if there's anyone out there listening to this podcast that's a diesel punk and you've not heard of Harry Houdini, oh, I don't know what to say for you. Um, Harry Houdini was born Eric Weiss in Budapest, Austria, Hungary on March 24th, 1874. His uh, parents were Rabbi Mayor Samuel Weiss and Cecilia Weiss. And um, he had a brother, uh, uh, Herman. Uh, he was actually his uh, half brother by uh, Rabbi Weiss or Weiss's first marriage, and um, so, several other siblings. Anyway, um, grew up, came to the United States in 1878. Grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, where his father was the uh, local rabbi, and um, he uh, began his magic career in 1891. And because 
of when he started performing. Obviously, a lot of his uh, his fans are also uh, our steampunk brothers and sisters. He's one of those other characters that bridges the gap. But uh, the majority of his fame and success came in the uh, 19-teens uh, through... Um, through 1926 was uh, when he died. Um, Halloween night, 1926, and um, <clears throat> Harry Houdini as a uh, as a performer is uh, was one of the well he was the highest paid performer of his era. Uh, he was considered the most famous uh, entertainer of his lifetime. Uh, performing in front of captive audiences in the largest theaters and arenas and uh, even became a film star, um, starring in several early uh, movies and um, inventor and creator of several pieces that uh, magicians are still doing today. Um, he created the... Uh, the art of escape artistry and really elevated it to a theatrical art. He created maybe what is his most famous and infamous piece of magic, the Chinese water torture cell, uh, which we, he was suspended upside down, chained up, locked in a glass and steel cabinet, full to overflowing. And um, he had to escape. And uh, in his version, he held his breath for more than three minutes um, in the, uh, you know, he's become such a prevalent part of pop culture. He's a character in the musical Ragtime. He is referenced numerous times in Boardwalk Empire um, because his brother, Hardeen, who he had an imaginary rivalry with, is uh, a character in the first season of Boardwalk Empire. Um, he founded and was the first president of the Society of American Magicians. And um, he at one time owned the Martinka Magic Shop in New York City, which is still in existence today. It's uh, considered the oldest magic shop in the United States. Um, just a, an amazing guy. And later in his life, during the Diesel era, and this is really where most people know him from, um, you know, after, you know, the, the mid-teens, 19-teens, you know, gaining popularity as an illusionist and as a uh, an escape artist, he changed his focus on spiritualism. And he went after the fake mediums, and the fake spiritualists. And um, one of his rivals in that, in that kind of war started out as a, a very dear close friend, and that is, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator and writer of Sherlock Holmes. Doyle's wife was a well-known spiritualist who was one of Houdini's first exposés. And when uh, Houdini exposed 
Doyle's wife, ruined her career and uh, really damaged Doyle's reputation and um, cost him significant, significantly financially. Um, he died in 1926. Halloween night uh, is when he died. Most people believe the myth that he died inside the water torture cell. I don't know where that myth comes from, John, because there's no there's no record that I'm aware of that that even mentions that. Um, he did die of uh, alleged appendicitis caused by a punch to his side by a uh, young um, by a young college student visiting him. And, um, you know, he had he had had this uh, reputation of uh, of being, you know, strong and able to take any kind of a punch. And uh, the uh, young man that punched him, um, let's see, Jack Price and Sam Smiley. Um, we're not sure which one, which one did it, but uh, those two guys were, were the eyewitnesses. And... Um, so he, you know, that's kind of his bio and who he is. And um, a lot of stuff has come out in recent years. And um, John, you want to talk about the uh, recent revelations? You actually sent me a copy of The Secret Life of Houdini, The Making of America's First Superhero. Have you read this yourself? I it's honestly still in my stack to read. I haven't made oh, it. Oh my gosh. I had actually read it before you sent it to me as a gift. I had, uh, I, I actually had already owned a copy, but when you sent me this copy for Christmas, I, um, I, I gave my other copy away to, uh, someone who was interested in Houdini. Um, this is an amazing book. It's by William Kalish and Larry Sloman. Bill Kalish owns the, um, or, or created the, um, what is it called? The Magic, uh, here it is, the uh, Conjuring Arts Research Center. And um, he discovered, or someone discovered and, and gifted to him, a, a collection of diaries that had been discovered in an attic and had been, you know, long forgotten. And um, they were diaries. I, I, I'm trying to remember if they were by Houdini or by a relative of his or a close friend. Um, I'm looking at this right now, but uh, it it suggests that at the end of World War One, Harry Houdini was recruited by. MI5 and would become a spy for His Royal Majesty the Queen in Germany and Russia and um, later on even becoming part of the American Secret Service. Um, not, the, not the first celebrity to become a spy and not the last, if you believe uh, Chuck Barris's accounts. But uh, really super interesting. This book is amazing. It reads like a movie. As a matter of fact, there is a movie in development based on this biography um, coming out 
um, not next year, but the following year. So I guess 2008, starring Johnny Depp as Harry Houdini. Hmm. Um, so that'll be interesting. Now, Daisy, you mentioned yes. the uh, the A&E and TLC joint um, two-part movie documentary. Yeah, that was last year. Um, we had uh, Adrian Brody playing Houdini. Yeah, so, you know, I, I watched that myself. And um, at first I was really dubious about Adrian Brody's Mm-hmm. Um, a choice to play Houdini, but did a great job. Now I found it interesting though that 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 movie that special was based on a book called Houdini: A Mind in Chains, and it's a really hard book to find. I actually it's one of the few books on Houdini that I don't have in my collection. But uh, it was written by a psychologist who analyzed the stories and the writings by Houdini. And, of course, that included some of the works by Walter P. Gibson, um, who was a ghostwriter for Houdini. Most of Houdini's books were written by Walter Gibson, who was uh, also uh, the writer of The Shadow. Ooh. Yeah. Um, I'm, no, I'm looking on Amazon at that book, and it's like uh, $89, yeah. $95. So, yeah, it's it's tough to find. Yeah, and, and the the uh, author, who's the author's name? Um, uh, the author's name, it's uh, Houdini, A Mind in Chains by uh, Bernard C. Meyer, and it was published in uh, 1970. This version was published in 1976. Yeah, so, you know, in that movie – they hint a little bit at his involvement with um, MI5, but that was never part of that book. That book, you know, analyzed Houdini from a psychological standpoint. And what came out in that two-part movie was Houdini's obsession with death and his apparent womanizing and um, philanderous nature. Now, John, I before I saw that movie and before I read that book, or, or heard of that book, rather, the only other version of Houdini's life that kind of hinted that he was somewhat of a, um, you know, unfaithful husband was the movie Death Defying Acts with Guy Pearce and um, um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And... Every other account I've ever read indicates that he was a very faithful husband and that he and Bess were inseparable. Everything I know says that, too. So, you know, I was kind of taken aback by that in the film because nothing else in any of the literature really supports that. Well, um, there's lots of stuff that is inaccurate with the A&E miniseries that they did. Oh, yes. I know. Like, he never did the bullet catch. Never did the bullet catch. Um, most likely never met the Tsar, Tsarina, Rasputin, or them. Um, it is disputed on if they met, but they didn't meet where they met in the movie. If they did it, I think it was the where they were rumored to have met is like 100 miles south of there. Um, 
And by the way, the reason a lot of people believe he died in the water torture chamber, there was a movie made in the late 60s, early 70s. Tony Curtis. And he died in the water torture chamber in the movie. That's right. Tony, and, Tony Curtis and um, Vivian Lee. But if you want to watch pretty much the best Houdini movie that is out to date, uh, came out in 1998. It is called Houdini, and it starred Jonathan Satch, Stacey Edwards, Paul Servino, um, Rhea Perlman, several others. Mark Ruffalo was in there. He played the brother of Houdini, Houdini Theo. It's been years since I'd seen since I've seen it, but it is the most historically accurate movie on Houdini that's out there. Really, I, you know, I have not seen that movie. I've heard about it, but it's impossible to find. It is extremely difficult to find, but I, I watched it back in the day half a dozen times. You can occasionally find it on DVD, and if you do, I suggest you snatch it up. But if you can find it, it is this is the movie to watch. Well, you know, he, he's been the subject of books. He's been the subject of movies and television shows. There's a uh, there's a animated film that just came out a couple of weeks ago um, about uh, Harry Houdini as a child that is getting rave reviews. And I've not seen it yet. It's set, you know, during the Victorian era, during his youth, but um, really, really getting great reviews. Um, you know, he was uh, one of the early uh, kind of um, action adventure stars in silent films, and uh, his work in um, as as a biplane as a pilot um, in a film is what a lot of people uh, credit as being an influence for Howard Hughes and his uh, aviation film obsession. Now, here's what's really interesting. And this is where the, the, the life and times and, you know, grandiose nature of Harry Houdini really gets interesting. There was a book, and I've got it sitting right here on my bookshelf, called The Man Who Killed Houdini. And this is the first book to suggest that um, those two students... Uh, it's actually the student's name was Gordon Whitehead. The other two were the witnesses. Um, this book suggests that Gordon Whitehead was not, his encounter with him was not an accident. It suggests that it was a premeditated murder and that Harry Houdini was murdered. Well, Brad Metzler, if you've ever seen his show Decoded, took up this issue based on this book and uh, based on some of the uh, other uh, other items out of the secret life of Houdini and really started researching this. And there is a lot of evidence that he was murdered, but not just by th this guy, Gordon Whitehead, isn't the only suspect because there were a lot of people who wanted Houdini dead including his former best friend, Conan Arthur Doyle. And there are some, some documented um, pieces of ev evidence that suggest 
that he may have been the person to encourage or even hire those three students to confront Harry Houdini in his dressing room that night. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty strong accusation. Right? It gets better. There is some pretty significant evidence that it may not have been Doyle because the person who actually had the most to benefit from Harry Houdini's death was his own wife, Bess. And she maintained a friendship with Doyle's wife even after Doyle and Houdini split. But here's where it gets really interesting. Bess was a rising star of the vaudeville stage. She had her own career before they met. And she was headlining as a singer and a dancer on vaudeville um, when they met. And Harry made her his partner, but she really took a, a severe step backwards and became just really more or less a prop in his stage show. And there's some writings by her in some diaries that suggest that she became more and more bitter about that as she got older. And she did benefit from a huge, huge life insurance policy that she bought on Harry less than a year before he died. It's pretty trippy, man. Yeah, you know, uh, I would be more suspicious of someone other than Dole, because what little I know about Golden Dole's life and personality, he doesn't seem like the type of man that would have put a hit out. Um, so, so maybe looking at other suspects, it, it does sound kind of weirdly suspicious that you know, they didn't give Harry Houdini a chance to prepare, and they reach out and they slug him when he wasn't ready. It has the sound of a hit. Uh, one that could uh, easily get away with. Yeah. Daisy Wafford, your thoughts on that? Oh, well, let's see. That's a lot to digest. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, a man who lived as a colorful and uh, interesting a life as he is. Um, you know, I think some things are always going to remain a mystery. And uh, I think that's what attracts people, is that mystery. What's interesting is as much as, have been, he, as much as has been written about Harry Houdini, as much as we know, and as much film footage and newspaper articles there are, there's still so much mystery surrounding his life that we're, we're constantly finding new stuff. I, I, I was just reminded of this, Wofford. Um, his brother, Theodore Hardeen, inherited his entire stage act after he died. And, you know, they had an onstage public, quote-unquote, rivalry um, that was, you know, supposed to have been staged, but 
there's I'm I'm looking at one reference here that you know says that Hardeen had a lot to gain from the death of his brother. Oh, he was bitter after uh, Bess took his spot in the show. Um, Houdini would be in, in a city performing, and his brother would be in the city performing, and Houdini would be doing his stunt where he is suspended three stories up, upside down, escaping from a straitjacket, and his brother Theo is passing out flyers to see Houdini uh, with the address of Theodore Houdini's show, because he was legally allowed to uh, be a Houdini as a stage name as well, and he was still doing that for a long time. And so he'd get all the people would be, oh, it, we're going to go see the guy who was escaping from up there, and they'd go see Theo that night instead of Houdini. From my understanding, the rivalry was not staged. His brother really was bitter. Yeah, they, they started as a duo on uh, in the uh, dime, uh, dime Museums. Um he may have even they may have even performed at the P.T. Barnum's American Museum. That may be where Houdini learned his showmanship and publicity skills from. Fascinating guy, fascinating guy, and a fixture of the Diesel era, and um, just like H.P. Lovecraft has become, you know, an iconic part of our pop culture and has uh, inspired and influenced so many different stories and uh, pieces of pop culture. Um, there is a Houdini Museum in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It is uh, billed as the only building in the world entirely dedicated to Houdini. It's uh, owned by uh, magician Dorothy Dietrich and um, you know, there have been other Houdini museums that have burned down mysteriously over and over over the years. I think three have burned. Um, currently, David Copperfield is the uh, largest holder of uh, Houdini memorabilia, and he uh, has a warehouse in uh, Las Vegas that stores 80,000 pieces of memorabilia that belonged to Harry Houdini or um, Houdini Associates, including the the original water torture cell and the metamorphosis tank or trunk. Um, both of those pieces of magic are still performed by stage illusionists around the world. They've become, uh, Wofford, would you call them... Um, Standards. Standards, yeah. And he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame that he was granted posthumously in 1975, and it's at 7001 Hollywood Boulevard. Harry Houdini, icon of the diesel era. Any other... Yeah, any other thoughts on uh, Mr. Houdini? Man, there's so much you can, Sammy. He inspired every magician since him. That There's a reason why my broadcast studio is called the Houdini Room. In fact, I do several things that Houdini did. I started doing, uh, a long time ago, the needle swallowing act that he used to do. I escaped from chains, cuffs, shackles, 
ropes, straight jackets. In fact, I love straight jackets. They're so fun. <laughs> um, he's one of the reasons I'm in Magic, Houdini, um, Jeff McBride, Doug Henning. These are three of the magicians that really influenced me getting in. Yep, um, I'm the same. Harry Houdini, um, Orson Welles, and David Copperfield for me. Oh, Orson Welles. He'll he'll See. be a topic on an upcoming show. Well, for sure. I just <laughs> I wanted to throw this out because it is near that time of year. If you get a chance this weekend, listen to War of the Worlds. Absolutely. Oh yeah, exactly. It is a Halloween tradition around here. You can listen. Um, Radio Archives Online has the original broadcast archive that you can stream or download. There is a Star Wars cast version made by Alien Voices. I gave Boss Larry a copy of that a few years ago. And then um, currently, the original uh, serial story by H.G. Wells of War of the Worlds is what Classic Tales Podcast is is releasing it's i think a seven part uh reading of war of the worlds the uh book not the radio show so you can listen to the book or the radio outstanding and um if uh if you want to get uh a copy of that or some of the other books that we mentioned um the um secret life of uh houdini some of the lovecraft books um my book tales from the flip side are all also available from our sponsor, Audible. And uh, you can download a, a copy for free. You can get a free audiobook just for trying them out at audibletrial.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast. So um, they've got over 100,000 titles, and uh, you can take your pick on us. How cool is that? Well, guys, it's uh, time to say goodnight, I think. This has been a pretty interesting discussion. I hope our, our listeners agree, and uh, I hope you guys like this idea. Um, next month, I don't know who we'll be talking about, but uh, we'll uh, probably keep it to one personality each month, and um, each one of us will bring someone different every month, and, and we'll just kind of have a, a loose discussion like we did tonight, and uh, we hope you guys like that uh, concept and that idea. If you do, send us an email. Let us know what you think at feedback at dieselpoweredpodcast.com and uh, you can follow us on facebook facebook.com slash dieselpoweredpodcast on twitter at dieselpodcast and of course on our uh, website dieselpoweredpodcast.com if you're listening to the show right now you're either listening to it on our server at podbean or on iTunes or Stitcher or one of the other great services that uh, streams our podcast. We're guys, we are averaging right now over 5,000 listeners per episode. That's pretty amazing. Larry, when we started, there were like three. Right. The three of us. And so, and so uh, you know, because our audience continues to grow every every episode, um, you know, we're we're getting to do things like Geekonomicon coming up in December. Um, we're gonna be there, me, Larry, Daisy, Wofford, 
and uh, Ken Sharkey is going to be joining us. And it's been confirmed, former co-host Ava Dahl will be joining us there as well. And um, Geekonomic Con is in Biloxi, Mississippi, December uh, 11th, 12th, and 13th. And um, the official theme for Geekonomic Con is Diesel Punk. We are creating and producing an entire diesel punk track of programming, including panels, workshops, and performances. And, Larry, we are going to set the Guinness Book of World Records record for most diesel punks in one place. Wow. Yeah, we've applied for the official record, and um, so... All of you listening, whether you're uh, a member of dieselpunks.org or some of the forums on Facebook like Dieselpunk HQ, um, spread the word. Spread the word, Geekonomicon, and uh, go to geekonomicon.com. But spread the word that it is a dieselpunk-themed con, and we are going to shoot for that world record. Now. Here's the funny thing about that, Larry. There, there's not been a world record for most diesel punks in one place. I was about to ask what it was. <laughs> so, so even if it's just the four of us, we will set a new world record. <laughs> so we, that's pretty much done. But uh, no, we. You know what? I would like to have. I would love to see about um, 150 to 200 diesel punks in one place. I, I think that's a, a reasonable goal, and I think that would be just a fantastic first time out. Yep. So spread the word. Get out there. Come to geekonomicon.com. Whatever you got to do to get there, get there. And uh, we will see you there. Well, guys, that's it for tonight. And um, Daisy, why don't, you, uh, why don't you sign us out first? All right, well, all you sheiks and shebas, you better have yourselves a great evening, a great weekend, a great Halloween, and you better watch out for them uh, ghosties and goblins and gremlins crawling around, because uh, they're going to get you if you don't watch out. Mr. Wofford? Well, I'd like to thank Wolfgang Parker for allowing us to use his music as our opener. And I'd like to thank the Dust Poets for allowing us to use So I Married a Magician as our closer tonight. I hope you've learned something on Lovecraft or Houdini. I had one other thing in my head I was going to say, and I totally forgot what it was. So I hope everyone has a great night. <laughs> oh, Mr. Amiet. Oh, I'll tell you what. It's been fun. Had a great time. And uh, since, uh, you know, got the ghosties and goblins coming up Saturday night, um, watch out for kiddos running around uh, in their little costumes. Uh, if you're out and about, be safe and uh, remember to take care of each other because that's what life is all about. Amen, brother. Um, one last thing. If uh, this makes it to air before Friday the 30th, uh, GMX. Geek Media Expo in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I will be joining Eugene John, who is the uh, founder of the Music City Steampunk Consortium, 
doing a panel discussion at GMX, infamously titled Steampunk versus Dieselpunk. We win. We have better weapons. <laughs> so if you're so if you're going to be at GMX, plan to join that panel at 9 p.m. Friday night, October 30th, and uh, we would love, love, love to see you there. Well, guys, until the next time, this is John Pica, also known as Big Daddy Cool Johnny Delaraca, telling you to swing hard, swing often. And he sawed me right through He said he had enough love to satisfy two Now if you were me and you were two What would you do? Would you take twice the love or would you get up the glue? Remember the wagons when they pulled into town You could see the big top four miles around Among the carnival freaks he stood out like a clown And from his top hat he pulled a wedding gown Hey, hey, what you gonna do? You can't love me and another one too Hey, hey, what you gonna say? When the cat's away the rats are gonna play
you know, I thought about all the times he shot me out of a cannon and all the times that he sawed me in half and all the times that he put me in a straitjacket and then in the trunk with a chain and another chain and all the padlocks and then he forgot about me for a few days. And to make matters worse, there were bunnies everywhere and I could never find my scarves. And so I took his wand and with a flick of my wrist, he was the last thing to dis uh, peace.